We are back for another episode of the Lodges podcast. This is episode 24 with Will Hershey, who is the co-founder and CEO of Roundhill Investments. We have a jam-packed podcast episode. We started off talking about Roundhill, how the company got founded, who they are, where they work um, in the industry and, and what they're focused on, and hopefully answering some of the questions that you guys may be wondering about them. We then transition over to what we're calling the streaming wars, which is essentially these different platforms, whether it be Twitch, Mixer, or YouTube, or Facebook, um, trying to have exclusive deals with different content creators and streamers. There's a lot of interesting conversations surrounding that. We also talk about Fortnite and how they're becoming more than just a game, how they're starting to look like a social media platform, how they're hinting that they're becoming more than just a game. Um, and then we rounded out talking about mobile gaming. Uh, Will has a lot of uh, different knowledge and interest in mobile gaming, and it's something that I wanted to bring to the podcast because we hadn't talked about that yet. So hopefully you guys enjoy that conversation and enjoy the podcast as a whole. So with that being said, this is the Lodges Podcast up next. Welcome back, everybody. We are live for another episode of the Lodges podcast. This is episode 24, second episode of 2020, and I'm super pumped to get into it. We have an amazing guest with us and some really cool topics that we're going to jump into. But real quick, just some admin things before we get started. We have a new five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you're a current listener, you know how this goes. If you are a new listener, um, whenever you leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a question or a comment or thought, and we will read it live on the following episode. So our latest review is from Chris Reed, who is actually a past podcast guest. So shout out to Chris. Um, his title says, Great Podcast, and he says, Very Insightful Podcast on the eSports space. Um, so keeping it short and simple, Chris, I appreciate your five-star rating and you taking the time to go on there. Um, again, if you're a new listener and you want to do that and you have any questions, feel free to do that. Um, but we're going to go ahead and jump into it. We got a lot to cover today. So again, this is episode 24. And with us, we have Will Hershey, who is the co-founder and CEO of Roundhill Investments. Uh, so Will, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Juan. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm pumped to, to jump into all this with you. Um, Will, I think... Before we get into the different conversations and the different topics we have, uh, a great way to just start is, you know, let us know who you are, where you're from, and kind of your background story. Sure. So we'll, we'll start with the boring stuff about me <laughs> and then get into more more exciting stuff, which is the world of esports and, and, and game streaming. So uh, I'm Will Hershey, co-founder and CEO of Brown Home Investments. Um, from a personal standpoint, I'm from New York City, uh, so I grew up in the city, which some people are are shocked by when they hear that, like that, like that. I, I, but I did. I grew up in in Manhattan. Um, both my parents uh, worked on Wall Street um, at, at different firms, both of which uh, no longer exist after after the financial crisis. So my dad worked at Merrill Lynch. My mom worked at Lehman Brothers, um, which kind of, uh, to me, from a very young age, got me interested in the financial markets. Got me interested in stocks. And, and, and that kind of relates to, to what I'm doing now at Round Hill. Um, but kind of growing up, definitely uh, more of a, of a sports guy. I played football and lacrosse in high school. 
but gaming was always a big part of my weekends of relaxing um, and definitely something I, I did for, for pretty, pretty significantly, you know, in terms of the amount of time spent, I definitely uh, wasn't, a, wasn't a competitive gamer, but definitely spent way too much time uh, gaming growing up. And that went all the way through, through college for sure. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, the weekend gaming and kind of at night or whenever we didn't have something else going on, it was the perfect way to, to unwind and, and have fun with friends and all that. Um, and so, Will, where did you where did you go to college? And then, you know, after college, what was your kind of what was your path into the professional space? Sure. Um, so I went to Vanderbilt University uh, in Nashville, uh, went there actually with my now co-founder, Tim, Tim Maloney. So we've known each other. I shouldn't mention this. We've known each other all the way since we were in kindergarten um, and have gone to school together for a long, long time. Uh, went oh, our wow. separate ways after school. Yeah, I know. Long time. Uh, went our separate ways after school. So after school, um, I studied economics undergrad. Um, like I alluded to earlier, always had this kind of passion uh, for financial markets. And after school, um, I went and worked for a firm that I had kind of been interning with uh, during my time in undergrad uh, called Yorkville ETF Advisors. And uh, during my time there, was fortunate enough to be a part of a small team that launched two ETFs, which are exchange traded funds. That's what they stand for. They're basically securities that trade on the exchange that look and feel like a stock, but underneath them, they own different assets. And, and during my time there, um, helped launch two uh, ETFs focused on energy. So the energy markets, more specifically uh, pipeline ETFs. So I was part of a team that really got to put those two funds together. We raised $400 million in those two funds at their peak as a small team. And during my experience there, this is right, you know, right out of school, I'm 22, 23, 24, um, got to understand what goes into making a new fund, which is effectively what an ETF into a new fund successful. How do you mm -hmm. create it? How is it marketed? Um, and, and really everything that goes into it from an operational standpoint, but two bigger than that, uh, I really got to appreciate uh, the ETF business model, uh, which kind of brings me to, to Round Hill. But before before I go to Round Hill, spend some time, uh, for those who, who are somewhat familiar with the industry, on the actively managed side. Uh, so most recently, I was the head trader for a long, short uh, energy hedge fund. Um, once again, trading those pipeline-related securities. Um, was a rough go, a little rough uh, patch for energy uh, over the past five years. And I really sat down and looked myself in the mirror and said, one, do I want to tie my career to trading pipeline assets that I don't believe in is the way of the future, um, especially with climate change and everything else going on, one. Mm -hmm. And two, do I want to be uh, an equity trader, which for those who are unfamiliar, the more and more that technology plays a role, it really becomes, you know, I, I don't mean to diminish the role, but it became glorified button pressing, right? You press the button to put in a yeah. trade through an algorithm. And that was really the extent of it. So I, I sat down and said, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. How can I <laughs> leverage? Yeah. How can I leverage my past experience to do something where I can really create value? Uh, and that's really what, what led me to Round Hill. Right, right. Which is, you know, it's, it's self-awareness and pivoting. And that's really cool that early on you, you discovered that and you realized you wanted to go a different direction. Um, 
And so let's let's get into round two and go ahead and start to jump into some of these topics um, because I don't even know that I know this. So I'm also kind of interested just to hear how round two got started. You know, what is the founding story behind that? Um, I'd be really interested to hear about it. Sure. So I kind of gave a little bit away in terms of from my personal journey, if you will, mm-hmm. what what made me say, hey, uh, I don't want to go the kind of the, the typical path that would have made the most sense. I want to go out and do something. Uh, on my own. So um, kind of coming from that background, um, got together with Tim Maloney, my co-founder I mentioned earlier. Um, Originally, and I always tell this story, but originally um, this was kind of around the time that crypto was a big thing. Um, And and Tim and I both kind of had a passion for it, not just everyone had a passion for it at that point in time, because the price is going from here to here to there. (laughs) Everyone was talking about it, but we were really interested in the technology. But Really, that got the two of us talking once again. Um, you know, we had been we had been good friends when we were younger. Didn't necessarily stay in touch that much, um, but kind of bonded over over discussing different things in the market. And I kind of had my experience with what was going on with with the energy market, and kind of said to Tim, um, you know, I don't know about crypto, but I think there's a really interesting opportunity within exchange traded funds, within ETFs, leveraging my knowledge and. Long story short, um, we founded Roundhill in the September of 2018, so a little bit over a year. Oh, wow, it's almost a, it's like a year and three or four months now um, with the goal of let's create financial products. Um, we believe that ETFs, exchange traded funds, are the superior vehicle that are targeting younger investors, that are serving younger investors, and looking at providing exposure to different industries that younger people are passionate about, that they believe in, that they want to succeed, that they want the brands to succeed, where they're interested in keeping up with the news mm-hmm. and kind of did our our research in terms of what um, our first product should be. And, you know, leveraging kind of our, our both of our backgrounds as casual gamers in the past, we said, look, there's all of this excitement uh, surrounding esports. You know, there's another headline every every other day with a you know, with a traditional sports owner making an investment to an esports team. But if you're the average investor, whether you're an institutional investor or retail that's looking at public markets, there really isn't uh, a great way for you to get diversified exposure to the theme of esports. Mm-hmm. And so we went about creating an index, which we launched in January, um, of 25 companies that are all exposed to kind of our concept of esports. We then um, Kind of great. We we did a we did a funding round. So we're we're at this point we're going out and we're doing it and we're being entrepreneurs. Um, and then we launched uh, our esports ETF. Full name is the Roundhill Bitcraft Esports and Digital Entertainment ETF. Uh, we launched it in June on the New York Stock Exchange. We even got to ring the closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange, which is a pretty awesome experience. Um, and now that's available for trading for people who want to you know hopefully buy into to the esports thesis you know over the long term they now have a way to do it uh it trades under the ticker symbol nerd which we love because we're, <laughs> we're we're n-e-r-d we're both gaming nerds and investing and finance and index nerds so it's like the perfect ticker that we were able to get yeah no i think the name is just spot on i think it's really cool how you guys were able to do that um Okay, and then I want to jump into and correct me if we can't. Can we talk real quick about what's included in some of the ETF, and you know how you think it differentiates from maybe other competitors? Or really, what I think is important here is that you guys 
really focused in on what is esports and you put that in the ETF. Um, and I think that's really cool. So if you just want to touch on that real fast. Sure. So in terms of getting exposure to esports, whether it's private or public, you know, there's, you know, it, it's not always the most well-defined term. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think part of part of our job was kind of helping to to define that that term and what it really means. And, and and from an investment standpoint, what are the parties that stand to benefit? And we really, um, in terms of our research, kind of brought it down to three primary categories. And, and these are the types of companies that make up our ETF. And we can talk individual examples too if you'd like. But okay. so the first the first main category. Um, are the games companies, the companies that own the intellectual property that are game developers that are sometimes game publishers. So companies like Activision, like Ubisoft. Um, and really, I think when looking at esports, really, really important to understand, and this kind of can't be understated, is how much power the companies behind the intellectual property have in the whole ecosystem. Right. Um, and very different from traditional sports where you and I could get a few friends together and start a pickup basketball league tomorrow. We can't go ahead and start our own Overwatch league tomorrow. Or right. we can, but we'd have to get signed in from, from Blizzard and do this whole thing and yeah. probably not worth our time. Um, <laughs> but I think really, really important to understand two things about the game publishers. One is how much power they have in the ecosystem, right? Just look at Heroes of the Storm. Basically, Blizzard said we're not going to support a competitive ecosystem anymore and poof, it's gone. Right. That's one. And then two, when investing is, you know, not all companies that create games create esports. I think when you look at the companies that are public that really have kind of the best portfolio of true, true esports, you have to mention Activision, right? Call of Duty League, Overwatch League, Starcraft, World of Warcraft. Um, another one I like to point out is Tencent, uh, which I could rattle off the assets they hold for like for forever. But really important, really important to understand, like Nintendo is 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 a company not in our ETF. I think Nintendo's pretty been pretty anti esports, been pretty anti game streaming, um, just in terms of the way they've run their business. And that shows its head. Next kind of group of companies are what we consider media companies. And in esports and game streaming, we really have this whole ecosystem um, and, and this whole this whole you know, economic base that's been built off of not the core underlying asset, but rather second derivative of consuming that asset. What I mean by that is no one wants to watch someone else watch a movie. No one wants to watch someone else listen to music. But because of the digital immersiveness of gaming, and we'll talk more, I'm sure, about this, people want to watch other people play games. And how is that being monetized? And from a public market standpoint, that's kind of you know, falls into this media category of streaming platforms. Um, in the U.S., the large streaming platforms are, are all owned by major tech companies, so those aren't included in our index. But you could look at uh, a company like Huya and Douyu, uh, which are the Chinese streaming platforms. Africa TV, Korean streaming platform included in there. Um, and, and then on the media side as well, we, we bucket under there is a company like MTG, Modern Times Group. Most people don't know this is public. But you can actually invest in the parent company of ESL and DreamHack, trades in Sweden, included in our ETF. And then finally, the last, the last kind of grouping type of company that we have in the portfolio are uh, hardware. So okay. um, we see hardware as kind of a alongside alongside media. Both of those categories 
allow for you to get exposure to the space without placing a bet on a certain game, right? Whether it's whatever, if Fortnite is the hot title or League of Legends, people are still going to watch on streaming platforms and they're still going to invest in mice and keyboards and headsets and gaming PCs. So companies there, I'm sure a lot of your listeners, listeners have heard of, I'm sure they own uh, some of their peripherals are companies like Razer, which is traded in Hong Kong, like yeah. Logitech, which is out of Sweden, um, and really packaging all these types of companies together um, in order to create what we think is a diversified way to get exposure to esports. Yeah, no, no, no. And that, that was a great analysis breakdown. Thank you for going into the three buckets. Um, I think that'll definitely help anyone who, you know, maybe is aware of you guys, but isn't too fond or doesn't know too much about the details. Um, I think that really jumps into it. Um, and the ETF is cool. I mean, it's awesome to see that you guys strategically had all this in mind, um, how you went about creating it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see how that goes for you guys over the near future and the long term. You know, it's really going to be exciting to see. Um, something I want to jump on. So, and again, for our listeners that are tuning in, kind of what Will and I chatted about prior to doing this episode was we wanted to go with the general overview of round hill give you guys some context some information about them and let will chat about all that and then will and i want to get into some other topics or spend a heavier portion of the episode on these other topics but will before we transition out of round hill um what i did want to talk real quick because i know this comes up for you guys so in case any listeners listening right now wondering this just to clear the air on this so you guys do not though invest in gaming startups or businesses that are coming up or, or anything like that uh, that's correct, and and thank you because you're saving my LinkedIn in, inbox so hard by asking that question. <laughs> that is that is correct. Um, we don't invest uh, in in privates or startups. Um, if it's appropriate, I'm happy to make an introduction. Um, but in terms of the ETF, it's solely investing in in publicly uh, traded securities, but it's very much so global. So if you're a public company, you know that meets our minimum size requirements. If you're in Korea or Taiwan or Hong Kong, it doesn't matter. It can be included, but that's correct. Okay, cool, cool. I just wanted to clear there in case anyone's, you know, listening in <laughs> and wondering that. <laughs> um, but um, so before we go away, that's that's kind of our round hill, but before we go away from esports and the public market and all that, I know we wanted to cover um, Australis a little bit. And, you know, they were the first te esports team that went public a couple of months ago. Now, I can't remember exactly what month it, what month it was, but a couple of months ago. Um, for context, for any listeners, in case you didn't hear that, to give you a little bit of context of it, um, from what I found, they're the number one ranked CSGO team. They have brand deals from Logitech, Audi. Um, so a huge player that went public. Uh, the IPO was set at 133 USD a share um, with a valuation of $75 million USD. So... Just some context, Will, I want to hear from you. Um, again, I know this story is a little bit, not dated, but a couple of months ago, but given you know the kind of guest you are and having you on, I still wanted to touch on it with you. You know, What were your initial thoughts when this happened? And once they went public and we were able to you know, see more than if they weren't public, what were your thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's first of all, it's a great thing for the industry, right? Because along with coming public, we get a look eventually once they report their first financials, we start to really look, what does it look like from an economic standpoint to run an esports team? Um, and, and I think that that's gonna be pretty interesting and cool to see. And beyond that, um, just at, at kind of the most visceral level, it's pretty cool to have a team asset public where their performance, when you're watching them over the weekend at the you know, blast finals or whatever it is, 
could impact economically how that performs. It's like a very different um, asset from most stocks we think of. I mean, there's a, right. there's a handful of traditional sports team assets that, that have gone public over the years. Madison Square Garden's public. The Atlanta Braves are public, Manchester United, but this is really the first esports team. I should also point out that there are other uh, publicly traded companies that have teams underlying their assets. So Enthusiast Gaming up in Canada has Luminosity, which is Ninja's first uh, Ninja, Ninja's first team uh, under their umbrella. Huya owns the Chengdu Hunters and Royal Never Got. So there's other there's an LPL team. So there's other um, companies, but this was the first pure play. Um, so what was my kind of take on it? Um, it has traded a little bit lower from where it first came to market. Um, I, and, and I hate to kind of point things in a potentially negative way, but my first thought when I first heard the news was why? Why mm. are they going public now um, when we're seeing, uh, you know, G2 raise 10 more million from uh, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets at 100 million when we're seeing 100 thieves do another round? My first thought was maybe... They don't have the same access to capital that some of the uh, teams in the U.S. do. That was kind of my first my first thought. Okay. Um, maybe they weren't able to get, you know, kind of they weren't able to get the capital they need from the private market, so they turned to the public. Right. However, that being said, um, I think in in terms of Astralis, you have a pretty interesting compilation of assets. So you mentioned their Counter Strike team, which is, um, you know. Even if you're an outsider and you watch some Counter-Strike, you know they're 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 at the top of the top. Um, that's kind of their flagship asset. But they also have uh, a franchise slot in the European League of Legends in the LAC. Uh, and, and and on top of that, they have a FIFA team. But really, between the League of Legends slot and the CS:GO team, you kind of have two different assets. The League of Legends slot, I view as something that they're going to have on their balance sheet that could very much appreciate over time. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if the League of Legends slot in five or 10 years is worth more than the 75 million that they came to market at, yeah. um, just in and of itself. And that's that says a lot about League of Legends. But one last thing I'll share on, on Astralis is we got to see when they, when they went public, a look at their financials. And... Um, forgetting about where they are right now because they're just starting to figure out monetization. The biggest thing that they point to in their prospectus filing for the long term uh, as driving value to their shareholders are the media rights for different leagues um, that they're participating in. And I think that this kind of relates to something we'll talk about in a bit, which is the, the there's going to continue to be a battle for content um, right. and, and, and that's something that is going to be the long-term story for esports and how esports really start to monetize and make money. Definitely, definitely. Um, and and again, it's it's interesting to see them go public, and like you're saying, it, it'd be really interesting to see if a League of Legends slot does appreciate and go above the valuation that they initially had. And you know, it's just a lot of now different moving parts, and, and I don't know. It'll be cool to see it play out in the long run. Do you think? And this is just a hot take off the top of my head. Do you think we'll see more esports teams continue to go public again, like pure esports teams go public, or you know, do you think a lot will stay private for right now? Or, or what are your thoughts? I think we'll see most stay private. Um, okay. I think this was kind of a one-off. That's my gut, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. And the last question before we move away from the public space is and i had someone ask this question i see people ask this question and you know given your experience and background i thought you'd be the perfect guest to ask this to is you know what 
and I think some people have a general gist of, you know, the benefits of going public versus staying private. You know, if you have any kind of financial education or background in the space, you might understand that. But what are your thoughts on a gaming company or a gaming organization going public versus staying private? Um, you know, just real quick, what do you think are the benefits and, and the negative aspects of that? Yeah, so I think, and we've seen this with a couple of smaller esports-related um, companies that have gone public in the U.S., right? It's not just Astralis, the team. We also had Allied Esports go public, which uh, owns a big venue out in Vegas. We saw Super League Gaming go public. Um, the benefits really from being public typically are um, access to capital, right? Your ability to, if you have a really um, exciting uh, asset you're going to acquire or a new initiative that you're going to that you're going to fund, you have the ability to more easily, you know, issue new shares in order to fund that initiative. And that's that's a huge advantage that you have versus the private markets where, you know, it's a whole process of, of fundraising and, and doing another round. That becomes a whole lot easier as a public company. On top of that, you have a currency um, to acquire assets, right? You can, you can buy things uh, or, or do a merger or whatever else utilizing shares versus cash uh, a whole lot easier when there's a public benchmark. Um, and, and I think one last benefit is right now esports are, are, are rather hot and mm-hmm. potentially you have the ability to get a better valuation from the public markets with a large group of different investors who all want a little piece uh, and, and there's benefits there. From a negative, I mean, it's very expensive to go public. Uh, Astralis listed on the first north, uh, first north Nasdaq in, in Denmark, which is an emerging mar- uh, market, mm-hmm. um, it's 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 not as expensive. That's kind of for more startup companies. But if you're going, and and fully becoming public, um, many we're seeing a lot of this in Canada, by the way. Uh, we have a lot of small uh, startup like companies going public early in their life cycle. Uh, the downside is just the cost, the operational burden. You need to file public filings. Um, it's really a cost standpoint from a negative. Uh, and then you're also opening up your, you're opening up your financials. You're opening up your kimono to the world. The world knows, right. uh, there's no more kind of, uh, <laughs> games to be played. It's, it, it is what it is. Right. Right. And along with that comes headlines, comes criticism. There's a lot of, a lot that goes along with that. So, um, no, that's awesome. That's a, that's a great breakdown. Um, I know some people I've been seeing it on LinkedIn. I've seen some people asking other people. So I really appreciate you, you know, chatting about that for a second. Um, well, let's switch over now. Let's let's pivot a little bit and let's jump into what, you know, we're calling the streaming wars, which is essentially, you know, just these different platforms, whether it be Twitch, Mixer, YouTube, Facebook, battling for for content creators and streamers and where the attention is going. And, you know, I know you and I are both hot on this topic it really interests us um and before we jump into it again i usually don't do this on episodes but for this episode since we're talking a lot of figures i'm gonna again just give the audience a bit of context so from stream elements report you know in 2019 if we're talking about market share of hours watched on different platforms we saw mixer have um a 0.06 percent increase we saw twitch drop six percent um, YouTube stayed about the same. And then the biggest jump forward was actually Facebook gaming had an increase of 5% again. And that's in market share hours watch. So, you know, people tuning in and watching, um, will, I think, you know, 
it's very suitable that, of course, on the day we're having this conversation, uh, <laughs> Valkyrie announces that she's going exclusively to YouTube Gaming. We had seen Courage JD already go exclusively to YouTube Gaming. Um, and, you know, I'm not really even sure where I want to start this conversation because there's a lot going on. But yeah. I guess what was your initial thoughts today with Valkyrie's announcement? Yeah, I mean, we call this... You mentioned streaming wars, right? Everyone's talking about the the streaming wars that are taking place between, you know, Disney versus Netflix versus HBO on on video. But mm -hmm. I almost think the more, I mean, obviously I think because this is what we're talking <laughs> about. But I think the more interesting, exciting streaming wars is what's going on on the game streaming platforms. And, um, you know, Valkyrie is just one more domino to fall in terms of what's taking place here. It's much bigger than one streamer. Um, and I think before we even talk about like who will win or the different platforms, like, well, let's talk about the different platforms. The most interesting takeaway for me with all of this is you have in the U.S., which is where this is taking place, mm -hmm. you have the four, four of the largest tech companies in the world that are all investing time and money into content for their streaming platforms, right? Facebook is Facebook gaming. Google owns YouTube and YouTube gaming. Amazon owns Twitch and Microsoft owns Mixer. Right. Like, if nothing else, the fact that there are these headlines every day of these major companies putting money into content for their game streaming platforms should wake the world up and say, why are they doing that? And I think the, the, the most obvious reason that I'm sure most of your listeners appreciate is they see real, real value in terms of winning this battle and having the predominant game streaming platform, but, but even in more, more intermediate near term is this is a really valuable audience. People that watch games is a really valuable audience to advertisers and sponsors. And, and you're talking about an audience that's growing really rapidly. And I think the biggest takeaway for me is like those four companies, which have trillion dollar market caps are spending time and effort on this, that's, should say, that should make you more bullish than anything I could ever say about this industry. Right. And the fact that it's all four that are, again, you're talking mega companies that are spending tremendous amounts of time, resources, and energy into this, and it's all four of them. You know, it's not like it's just Amazon or it's just Google. Um, and I don't think enough people say that. You know, that's actually a really good point, and I hadn't even really thought of it from that perspective, but I don't think a lot of people are mentioning even that perspective of it. Yeah, I mean, like, like this is an, it's not just an allocation of money. I mean, these these deals, even Ninja's deal, which we don't know the details on, it's not is not moving the needle for for Microsoft and right. Mixer in that case. But it's a whole lot of time and effort um, that that's to me suggests they 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 see tremendous value here. But in in terms of what's going on, it's really um, I I look to China. Uh, as kind of being a leader in general in esports and game streaming. And what we're seeing happen now is there is this kind of all of a sudden came out of nowhere, this rush to go ahead and sign premier content creators, premier streamers, and to mm -hmm. get them as exclusives on your platform. And we saw this play out in China where you know most content cre creators, most streamers are actually signed to multi-year contracts, right? They're salaried. Right. They have health benefits. Um, most of them look and feel that way versus what we had had in the States, which was kind of, you know, you could go wherever you want, um, but it didn't come with that same security. This is kind of 
uh, a natural evolution of this industry evolving and becoming more mature. Um, and, and it's something that, you know, it, I, once again, it has played out in China. It's interesting, um, and I, we, I don't mean to go down this, this rabbit hole, but in China, what we're now seeing is all of the ninja, the, their version of Ninja, they're all signed under one platform or another, whether Tuya or Douyu or Billy Billy. Now, for the most part, um, but now where their their attention is focusing in China is on the true, true esports assets. So we just saw uh, Billy Billy sign a three-year, $113 million deal for the League of Legends World Finals, mm-hmm. only in China. Like they, they, they signed the media rights deal, but it was only for China, which was like a pretty amazing number. Um, but it's interesting because they, this has played out over there. Um, I think it's going to continue starting with the top tier guys, but it's going to go all the way down to the mid tier uh, streamers and content creators till everyone's locked up. Yeah, no, I agree. I think this is like you're saying just the beginning with obviously it's got to start at the top. It's got to start with the big players, but as, and this is exciting. And I think we should appreciate this time because it's, if you're in esports and gaming, it's almost like it's free agency right now in the pro sports yep. world. Like, I think that's a great comparison. You know, I, I'm a huge NBA fan and one of my favorite times during the NBA season is obviously the offs, you know, the playoffs. Um, but then it's the off season to see the different trades that happen to see what teams go after what players, um, and, and of course this is different because they're individual streamers going to platforms. So I understand that difference, but you can make that analogy and it's exciting to see different, um, you know, people going to different places. Um, I didn't mention, but so Valkyrie went to YouTube today. It was along with two other streamers. So it was actually like a, almost, you could call it a package deal for YouTube. So it was a big day <laughs> for YouTube today. Um, and so here's where I want to go next with this conversation is, you know, kind of the elephant in the room is should Twitch be worried? Um, you know, their market share of hours watch dropped 6%. And when I looked at that report, the thing that stood out to me the most is, you know, you could sit here and you say, oh, that's only 6%. But out of all these big players, everyone else has went up and Twitch is the only one that actually had a negative. Um, you know, should they be worried long term or is this do you think this is just now kind of evening out the playing field and overall they're still going to be, you know, the mecca for streaming? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think I think if you ask me who's going to win, it's going to be Twitch. That Let's, let's start there. Now, should yeah. they be worried? Yeah, they should be worried because their cost of content just went up. Now, instead of having them is the only player in the room or them and YouTube is the primary players. Now you have four active bidders going after content. Um, and, and when that, when that next kind of, uh, evolution happens and when it's about when it's for big deals for esports assets, which I think is eventually where this goes. Yeah, it's going to be, it's, it's just going to make it that much more difficult. Um, but that being said, I mean, you look at like mixer numbers for Ninja for shroud. I mean, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're down a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think it brings up this kind of interesting uh, dichotomy, if you will, which is like, who is more valuable? Is it the content creators or is it the streaming platform? And then kind of even third, is it the IP owners? Is it the game? Right. Like who made who made who? Was it Ninja? Was it Twitch or was it Fortnite? Like, I don't know. It's a good um, question. But it's interesting. Right. Like who who was the real value in that in that um, kind of ecosystem? I think there's some 
stickiness to Twitch. I think that it's kind of there in the position to lose. Um, but yeah, there's no, I mean, there's no question about it that I, I was surprised if I'm being honest that Facebook had that kind of growth. Um, but then again, you kind of need to take blinders off and understand that this is a global phenomenon, that it's not always like the headlines and, and the moves that we're seeing in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's a few things I want to break down here with you because those are all really great points. Um, And I think the question you ask, it's super interesting. You know, is it the streamer? Is it the game? Is it the platform? Um, I, I don't know that anyone could really have a certain answer on that because I think they all kind of blend. And, and I think you got to kind of have a mix of the three. But you could certainly make an argument for almost any of those three, which is is really interesting. Um, but let's let's touch on the fact that, you know, you have Ninja and Shroud. And, and these two were kind of the ones that were surprising to me. You know, obviously, I believe in and correct me if I'm wrong, but tracking my memory, Ninja was the number one streamer of 2018 when he made, you know, the move over to Mixer. You had Shroud, who I believe when he moved was the third most popular watch streamer. And, you know, we see their numbers come out on Mixer where they're obviously drastically down. Um, you know, what do you think of that? Is it is it negative for those streamers or, you know, the fact that they have so many other outlets, you know, whether that be social media platforms or that be mm-hmm. meet and greets, whether that be concerts, you know, whatever they do, is it really that negative and an effect on them to see their viewership numbers down? Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of Ninja, like he kind of peaked alongside Fortnite peaking. So like, Mm -hmm. I I think for both of these guys, I'm not concerned if I'm them. I just signed presumably, uh, you know, I don't know the numbers, but not presumably, I signed a multi-year, multi-million dollar deal um, where, you know, I'm potentially improving my lifestyle, right? Now they they can, you know, they don't need to stream as many hours because they have the guaranteed contract there. It's it's just a natural evolution of, of this industry maturing and evolving. I don't. I think for them, it's it's a positive. They've got more flexibility, to your point, to grow their brand on social, to do merchandise, to do other partnerships. Um, but that said, it's it's got. If I'm running Mixer, it's got to be pretty concerning. Like, I, I I can almost guarantee that when they signed those guys, they didn't expect the drop off to be that great. Right. Um, and and it's interesting because like if you speak to people in the industry, like Mixer has arguably the best technology of any of the streaming platforms. They have lower latency than Twitch. Um, they have the best tech background behind it. Um, but it just, you know, there is some stickiness there. And if we go <laughs> yeah. back to the earlier question, like maybe the platform is, is, is the most important in that equation. I don't know. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, you know, I wonder with the platform, if, if we're going to see, you know, I don't know, is it a comfortability that people already had with Twitch because it was the early player and, and more people already spending time on there and, you know, people are just being stubborn and, and just want to stay on Twitch and we haven't evolved to, you know, okay, I'm going to go to other platforms. Um, but, but it's just very interesting. Um, something I want to jump to real quick is, you know, overall, you know, we can break, I think we could spend hours sitting here breaking this down and we're not going to do that for the sake of us or the (laughs) listeners. Um, but before we go away from it, I think a good ending point is, you know, is this overall spread of streamers getting exclusive deals? And again, you just touched on it. That means they don't have to stream as much. They have more flexibility in their life. You know, it's a better work life balance for them. You know, is the spread of people going to different platforms overall good for the industry, in your opinion? Yeah, um, I think it's got to be good. Um, yeah. 
it's much and, and it's good for the most important people in the whole equation, which are the content creators and the streamers. Um, you know, it's been pretty well documented kind of how many hours these guys were putting in to grow their their following and, and, and kind of how much time and effort it put it, it, it took, um, you know, for them to kind of get deals that look and feel more like a true job. It's a maturation of the of the industry. I think if you're going to look to the negative of it. Um, from a, I would say it's from a consumer standpoint, right? Like it was a whole lot easier as someone personal who enjoyed watching Shroud and, and Ninja. I enjoyed watching both, both of them. It was a whole lot easier for me to say, okay, I just go to Twitch and I know they're, they're, they're all there. Um, so from a user standpoint, it, it, it maybe wasn't the, the best thing, but from, from an industry growth and maturation standpoint, it was definitely a positive. Um, and I think eventually we will see a winner. I think eventually, you know, if Mixer doesn't start to grow, they're going to have to reconsider. Um, and I think that goes for the other platforms as well. However, one last final piece to note here. Yeah. If I'm Microsoft and I have Project Scarlet coming out in the Xbox Series, whatever they're calling it, Xbox Series 1X, I can never remember the name, the new Xbox. <laughs> yeah, That's the new what one. we'll call it, the new Xbox. Yeah. I'm like, there's a whole lot of interesting strategic stuff that I can do with ninja and shroud to promote products that i have to sell that are separate from mixer because they're Absolutely. part of the microsoft family um and there's more there i think probably compared to any of the other platforms there's more there where they can continue to invest even if it doesn't look like it's making money uh and sell other products uh, i'll just leave it at that yeah yeah no that the brand awareness that they can because they have both both hands to play I think they, they got to milk that and it'll be interesting to see, you know, like you're saying with this new Xbox coming out this year, if that happens or not, that'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, that was great. I have a lot of fun talking about all that. Um, and I know we wanted to jump into it, but now let's pivot over to Fortnite. Um, and we'll chat here for a little bit. And then for our listeners, just keep you guys on track. We're going to talk Fortnite and then we're going to end the podcast talking about some mobile gaming, but, um, for Fortnite, uh, this is really where I want to start at the top here real fast is because there's so much argument and debate and different opinions around this. Um, do you believe or do you consider Fortnite to be an eSport and, and why do you consider it or why do you not consider it? Uh, yeah, I mean, Fortnite's an eSport. We can stop it right there. Like they have the largest prize pool of any eSport last year, including Dota. Um people are playing it competitively like there's no question as to whether it's an esport um the bigger question for fortnite like is it has is it so much bigger than just a game um but there's no question that it's it's being played competitively um you know you have people putting in hours and hours dedicating their lives and time to being to being great at competitive fortnite um it is an esport the one i see the other side of the coin I see, you know, that there's RNG involved, and you could right. say this for any battle royale. Um, and, and does it look and feel like, uh, you know, pro like the most proper esports, which are usually one-on-one -on -one or five-on-five? -five? No, um, it doesn't. Um, but right. I think anytime we're going to get new genres introduced to the world of esports, people are going to be hesitant. But I mean, if it, it, it walks like a duck and, and, and quacks like a duck. Yeah. No, and I, I think I agree with you first off, but just off the bat, I do agree it's the eSport. Um, I see that other side because it is an RNG game, and like you're saying, it's not 1v1, you're 5v5, or, or whatever the case may be. You know, you know, the biggest thing I just take a step back and look at is 
you have the large gaming organizations, whether that be FaZe, 100 Thieves, you know, et cetera, et cetera, signing deals for players that are competitive Fortnite players compared to signing a deal for someone that's a content creator for them. And, yep. you know, when you talk about the prize pools and then you talk about the fact that you do have those gaming organizations that also sign League of Legends teams or whatever the game may be and they're doing it for Fortnite, uh, in my head, that kind of solidifies it as an eSport. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll leave it at that. No, no. And w one thing I would just say is on the other side, too, is Epic did everything in their power to make it not competitive, right? They changed That's the true. meta right before every single big tournament. And, and, and introduced new items and, and, and everything all the time. They like did everything. They did everything in their power to keep the casual player base engaged, which is how they make most of their money. This is true. But no. it still has a prominent esports scene. So I, I like it, it, it's, it's here to stay. Yeah, that's a good point to bring out too, because I didn't mention that. That that is a solid point. Um, okay, well let's talk about this. And you shared an article the other day, or uh, you wrote it or you shared it. Remind me. I was quoted in it. That's what it was. Okay. So you were quoted in an article and basically the gist of the article was, you know, will Fortnite repeat as the highest earning game in 2020 for context again in 2019, they had 1.8 billion in revenue. Um, I believe you said that they wouldn't, I kind of want to, I agree with you. I don't know if that they, I don't think they will. I kind of want to talk about that real quick though. Cause I do think it's an interesting topic. Yeah. So I think, um, I was quite honestly a little bit surprised to see it on top of this year's list. Um, just because looking anecdotally at things like uh, player engagement, um, a, a good proxy for how much uh, a game is being played is kind of, it's interesting. It's not hours watched on the streaming platforms, but it's the number of streamers that are streaming a game is usually a pretty good indication of, of trends. Um, I think when you look at Fortnite, you know, they had 2018 is the year where it just exploded um, mm -hmm. and they did all these things to keep up with it from a content standpoint to keep it popular and keep it fresh. 2019 from a business standpoint is really when Epic Games figured out how do we best monetize our user base? How do we improve the revenue per user um, and, and make that a science? Like I think they figured that out. Um, and, and, and once that happens, uh, you know, there's kind of only really two ways to, if, if you, if you've, for lack of a better term, if you figure out how to milk your user base as, as best as possible, um, really what you need to do is is either uh, really retain people really well or bring new people into the game. Um, obviously, we had Fortnite 2 or Season 2 or whatever we want to call it. Not mm -hmm. Season 2, but Fortnite 2. Um, I just don't see there being enough to bring new players without knowing what they have planned for the year. I don't right. see there being enough to bring new players into Fortnite. Like, if you were going to play Fortnite, you've probably played it by now, is my gut. Right, right. No, exactly. It's because the question that becomes who has not played Fortnite yet that is right. even going to consider picking it up. So, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, so, no, I, I completely agree with you that, that I think that is a struggle point for them. Um, something that I do think you, you could argue that they might bring to the table, and I know you're big on this, and, and I want to talk about this with you, is they do have their in-game activations which, yep. you know, dating back have been awesome starting, you know, we've had the marshmallow concert and I'm just gonna list three. You've had the black hole, you've had the star Wars event. I'm just going to have those three up. Obviously there's been some other ones, um, you know, and, and you talked about just a second ago, you mentioned that it's becoming more than a game and, and that's what they have to do to continue to win in the scene. Um, you know, 
where do you see maybe not even just Fortnite, but we have these in-game activations, especially most recently the Star Wars one, which really almost made you feel like they put you in the game. You know, they were talking live to you in the game, the events. You just felt really a part of it. Where do you see maybe not even just Fortnite, but the gaming industry and future games going where the user interaction is more so in the game and, and more real? Yeah, I mean, this is like we're starting to look and feel like the, the, the metaverse, if you will, or like some people like to call it the third place. Um, you know, like when I would go home growing up after school, uh, I would log on to AOL Instant Messenger. Now, kids are and adults are logging into Fortnite. Um, and it's really kind of cracked that code of something that had been wanted to be done for a long time. The technology was always there. But when you look at these events, I mean, the, like the fact that it's a game when you're when you're going in and experiencing the concert, for example, or even the Star Wars promo event, it 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 really becomes. And I it's interesting because I tweeted at Tim Sweeney on this, um, the the founder of Epic Games, and he actually responded. And I said, Do you view Fortnite as more of a game or a platform? Um, and he said, Fortnite's a game, but ask me that question again in 12 months, um, hmm. kind of hinting that they had plans for making more of a platform. Um, but I, I look at these events and, and, and using the Star Wars one as, as the best example, I mean, gaming is has the opportunity to be so much more from if you're an advertiser or a brand and you want a way to connect with a new audience, an existing audience, whatever it is. I mean, in any other medium, you you have kind of your 30 second pre-roll clip or, or whatever it is or, or, or still shot to kind of try and convince people. But in, in Star Wars, you actually had. Um, you know, the in-game uh, trailer. And then you had, uh, you know, an item, a lightsaber that allowed for an emotional connection with the users, with mm -hmm. your product. And like that makes gaming as a platform, as an advertising platform or whatever you want to call it, so much more powerful than, than anything else you could kind of do with any other medium. And we're, we're kind of just scratching the surface with what this could become. And I think taking, taking a step back, like, you know, I kind of the reason why esports is so exciting to me is not the way it currently looks with people going to, you know, filling up stadiums and, and it looks like traditional sports and we're watching on a you know flat screen and everything else. But mm -hmm. like esports and gaming is really our first look at what a virtual world could be. Um, and Fortnite and probably Minecraft and Roblox and some of these other immersive games, GTA in a different way, but but also similar. It's just so exciting, like like the interactive the interactive nature of games make it so that the better they get, the more we're going to be doing really interesting things, um, and that's going to be just interesting as a user, but also interesting from an economic standpoint as an advertiser and as brands. Yeah, no, definitely, I completely agree with you, and it's going to be interesting how it plays out. Um, and one thing, well, I wanted I want to see what you thought about this. That I've noticed, and again, we're using Fortnite as the example because I think right now, for as far as in-game experiences and, and really integrating the user, I think it's doing the best job. You know, it's almost like each one of their events has gotten better, which you expect obviously over time. The thing that stood out me in the Star Wars event was, and I'm just not really ignorant because I don't know the correct term for this, but you did not have to move your mouse or your your controller it locked in and moves your camera along as if you were legitimately watching the trailer, right? There was nothing that 
you had to do to keep up with the event, and it really almost just stepped it up. I think I was watching Tim the Tap Man live when he was doing it, and he was blown away by the fact that it was literally taking them along with them in the trailer, really making it feel like they were there. Um, and you know that leads me to think, do you think eventually AR and VR then gets added to that, and now it's like you're really there? Yeah, I mean, but I, I, I think that that's the natural next step here. Um, and I think it's something that can be included into an, an event like that. But for me, I look at esports, and I just alluded to this, but esports right now is is kind of our first look at what this could be. It, it looks and feels a lot like traditional sports, right? We're going to arenas, we're buying beer and popcorn, and, and we're, we're watching the game physically in person. Um, the same way we do an NFL game, basketball game, soccer game, you, you name it, um, which I think is, is, is the natural evolution uh, mm-hmm. of esports, right? And, and the reason that it looks and feels that way, primarily in my mind, is because the, the older guys with the big checkbooks, the ones who are investing in teams and leagues and whatever else, they need it to look and feel like something they understand, right? Think right. industries don't evolve overnight. They, they, they go in kind of different stages. And, and the first stage, you know, you know, kind of capitalized on people um, that understood traditional sports. Okay, let's make esports like traditional sports. In my mind, I think that's unnecessarily limiting what esports could be. I mean, if you look at, there's a company Tencent invested in called BattleRight um, that built a MOBA. Uh, that, and, Do- and Dota's done some similar things uh, at, over at Valve, but they built a MOBA with a viewing experience for VR. And really, if you imagine, I, I still think there'll be room for traditional esports going to a stadium for, you know, if it's mm-hmm. if it's if it's the, you know, um, LCS Spring Split or, or if it's something of, or the Fortnite World Cup, like they'll still be that there. Right. But we'll get to a point where the viewing experience from home with a VR headset on where I'm free roaming, uh, you know, within Fortnite, the, the gamers can't see me, but I can go to, I'm going to, I don't even know what's there anymore. I'm going to go to paradise parks. to want to see what's up. Right. Um, like that experience is where you blow traditional sports out of the water where you can, you know, you can't even compare the two anymore because my viewing experience was different from my friend's viewing experience, but my other friend and I met up in the game while the Fortnite world cup is going on like <laughs> that is like wow like right. we're in, we're in it now and it's it's and that's to me where esports gets so exciting from a viewer standpoint um but i don't want to get ahead of myself we're not there yet we will be but we're not <laughs> no definitely i agree it, it's a it's really exciting to talk about it we can only hope it gets there because like <laughs> you're saying imagine doing that it, it'd just be so cool um no that's awesome that's a really good explanation of everything and It'll be interesting to see what Fortnite does announce. You know, again, they don't they don't have very many announcements that are out for this year. Um, and so, last question I got for you before we shift away from Fortnite is just what is Will's prediction of Fortnite World Cup 2020? I believe it should happen. I think it'll happen. What is your prediction of price pool and location? Just hot take. Oh, uh, hot take. I think it'll be 100 million again. Um, I wish it would be like a billion because of how cool that would be, but I don't think we're going to see that. Uh, we got to remember, they're making $1.8 billion in revenue, right? So it's got to be lower than that. Um, right. And location. I think it's going to be U.S. again. I think it's going to be U.S. again. Okay. 
maybe West Coast. Okay, interesting. Good take. Good take. Um, well, let's now shift over to to mobile gaming. And again, I know we've kind of hit hard on on three different points, but I think these are all you know really significant. And I know you've got kind of a different flavor and, and passion for each one of these. Um, and mobile gaming being one of them. So again. I'm providing pride context real quick, and then we'll I'm gonna get your take on some stuff. So for anyone listening, if you haven't followed mobile gaming much, um, just some quick numbers. For example, uh, PUBG Mobile had an estimated or has an estimated prize pool of five million for 2020. Um, Call of Duty had 170 million downloads since its release on mobile. Um, and then from my research, and Will, I know you know more in this area, so let me know if I'm wrong, but it seemed like the biggest esport um, event of 2019 for mobile gaming was Free Fire, and I found that they had 1.2 million concurrent viewers, and they peaked at 2 million, which is pretty crazy for mobile. Um, before I get any questions, what is even just kind of your your take on on mobile gaming right now? Where do you see it? Uh, yeah, um, no, I love talking about Free Fire in particular because it it is such a great example of how global gaming is and how so many people in the U.S. have never heard of Free Fire, but it's the most popular game in Latin America uh, and Southeast Asia. Like, it's it's just, gaming is very fragmented, and, and we need to take a global view of what gaming really is. And in terms of mobile, that, I'm, I'm making a point here, I promise. In mm-hmm. terms of mobile, um, we need to understand that not everyone's in the U.S. Not everyone grew up, like, I consider the U.S. like a console uh, like a like a, a, a like we grew up with consoles in the U.S. It was very common, even if you were uh, middle class, lower class, to have uh, a PlayStation or an Xbox. Um, it's just the way society w- we've kind of evolved in gaming. Um, in other parts of the world, even more emerging and developed markets, they're not putting out five hundred dollars for a, for an Xbox. They're not uh, you know investing two thousand dollars into a gaming PC. Mobile has really become uh, the vehicle for gamers in this part of the world to get involved. And that includes everything from casual games all the way to now um, esports. And and a lot of this has been driven over the past you know five years or so because we're finally at a point now where smartphone technology and, and smartphones are everywhere. You know, if you look up smart I don't have smartphone penetration rates off the top of my head, but if you're in India, if you're in if you're in Brazil, if you're in um, you know, Taiwan, um, you still have access to a smartphone. And on that smartphone, even if you have an iPhone 5, you can run, you know, Fortnite or run PUBG Mobile mm-hmm. or run COD. And that's really, to me, one of the most exciting things about mobile gaming is it's bringing in new gamers that had never played before. And it's doing that with, with all different types of types of games. Yeah. Yeah. And that's certainly just true. And it's interesting because I think we did grow up in the U.S. where we think consoles, but it's interesting to see, you know, the culture shift in, in different places. Um, and, and something that I think of a mobile gaming is and I wonder what you think. I think when you someone gets asked the question, you know, are you a gamer? I think a lot of people forget, you know, did you play Candy Crush? Did you play <laughs> Flappy Bird? Did you play uh, Subway uh, Surfer? Yeah, Subway Surfer. You, you know what I'm saying? All these classics that we've seen, especially since the iPhone came out through the App Store and all that. You're, I mean, you're technically a mobile gamer if you play these games. Am, am I correct, or, or what do you think? Uh, so I'm not sure. I wasn't sure where you were going with that. Technically, yes, you're a gamer. Um, and actually, Candy Crush is one of the 
highest revenue generative games out there. Um, but you're, I think we need to also be honest at the same time and say a Candy Crush gamer is very different from a PUBG mobile gamer, right? They're not True. the same. They're not the same type of person um, or same type of gamer, if you will. Um, but I think the most interesting stuff that's happening right now is on the more um, on, on games on mobile that that look and feel like they should be played on a PC or, or on a console. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where a lot of the growth is coming in. To your point, yeah, casual gamers and, and hyper casual games, which is what those are, huge right. part of the market. Um, I think we do need to be a little bit careful in terms of saying, and we're, we're guilty of this too, right? There are 2.5 billion gamers in the world right now. Well, <laughs> it's true, but it's also not that true. You know what I mean? We say this all the time, but it's, yeah. you got to be careful. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I should have alluded that I meant casual, <laughs> definitely, um, compared to obviously a professional or, or super passionate or stream or anything like that. Um, and so I want to jump into now, obviously, the competitive side of mobile gaming there's a lot of debate here back and forth even on on twitter uh, i'll see it amongst people you know are people that play esports on, on mobile really considered competitive gaming is it or is it not um you take games like PUBG that like again we're, we're going to go back to the basics they have a prize pool um they have teams so where do you see um competitive mobile gaming right now yeah, I mean, I think I, I touched on this earlier, but in the parts of the world where you don't have the same console penetration, you don't have the same P, you know gaming PC concentration, those those gamers are are competing competitively on mobile. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at Free Fire as an example, if you pull up just like images of, of, of people at a Free Fire tournament or outside waiting to get in line to watch, like it's incredible. Um mm-hmm. And, and I think mobile gaming is very much so real competitive gaming. Um, you know, I think that in, it, it, it's not, I don't see it personally. I don't see it taking off in, in, in the U.S. just because people are going to play on other devices. But it's no more or less real. Um, to me, it's almost more incredible how people can play first-person shooters on their phone. Like, I, I, it's amazing yeah. to me. Um, but if you watch them play, you wouldn't know other than maybe the graphics that you weren't watching someone playing on PC. Um, so I think from an esports standpoint, I think mobile is going to be the the biggest area of, of kind of growth. Um, mm-hmm. what, what we really need to figure out though, is streaming for mobile, you know, is it, it needs to be figured out a little bit better from a technological standpoint, but that's going to be huge as well. Um, yeah. Outside of a tournament setting, how you can get, get streaming, to kind of take off. But if you look at, like I keep saying, if you look at different parts of the world, um, you know, Brazil and Free Fire, like the biggest mobile, the biggest esports there are mobile games. They're PUBG Mobile and Free Fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is interesting because I, I, I don't, go ahead. No, I just think the most important point to make here is, you know, for people to be fans of an esport, typically, this isn't always the case, but typically they need to be playing that game to some degree on their own. And because that casual gamer is playing on mobile in those parts of the world, they also want to watch what they're what they're playing. Interesting. That's a really interesting take. I, and really, a lot of, of what you brought up, I, I'm sure that people listening right now may not even know of, um, because I don't know how many people are are really even looking out there right now for esports as far as mobile gaming. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you about it was to kind of bring a little bit of awareness of it on on my platform at least. Um, and, and so, what do you think? Because again, I want to for the, for the average person right now, you know, 
maybe they've heard of esports and mobile gaming. Maybe they have. They've heard different things. What does or what do you think mobile gaming? Again, we're going to stay on the competitive side, the esports side of this. What do they have to do going forward to? I don't know if you want to say make a better case for themselves, but to bring more awareness around it. I guess is a good question. You know, is it more events? Is it higher prize pools? Is, is it more teams? What do you think? I think I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think it's more of the um, kind of casual streaming base that gets people okay. more excited in in watching the, the the competitive play, right? Like if you just think about like if Ninja didn't exist and if all the guys from TSM didn't exist and and then all of a sudden there's the Fortnite World Cup out of nowhere. It, you didn't get people like accustomed to watching Fortnite. Now all of a sudden it's just the competitive play. It becomes more difficult to appreciate it. I think uh, the biggest thing is kind of a, a more uh, com- like quasi competitive or like mm-hmm. uh, casual scene around streaming. But then again, yes. I think we need to temper expectations here. I don't see, you know, I don't see Arena Valor or, or PUBG Mobile or COD Mobile or any of these titles really becoming a huge hit from an economic standpoint or otherwise in the Western world, in the developed Western world, it's going to be other parts. It's going to be other parts of the world. Interesting. Interesting. No, I, I want that, that. I think those are good points. I want to hear about it. I want to get your take on that. Um, and I agree. I, th- I think if you start with the streaming base and, and get that attention going around it, I, I definitely, that's the correct place to start. Um, here's something I want to ask you. And I've heard this brought up among, amongst other people is if you're watching and, Again, maybe listeners haven't watched, but if you watch a competitive mobile tournament, is there a disconnection you feel compared to a regular esports event um, because it is someone looking down at their phone? And I guess maybe we've gotten accustomed to if someone's looking at their phone, they're not paying attention to us. So there's that disconnection, if you get what I'm saying. Do you think that's an issue when watching a competitive mobile esports event? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, okay. the, the, if you're watching a, a competitive broadcast of, of one of these big esports, it, it, I mean, the biggest disconnect is the graphics don't, don't live up to what you're accustomed to, but no, I don't, I don't think that's a hurdle. In fact, going back to kind of our earlier point of interactive nature of what esports could become, I think from a viewer's standpoint, if you could incorporate, I mean, everyone has a phone, right? No matter mm-hmm. what part of the world you're in, everyone has a phone. Imagine if for a mobile esports tournament, um, you know, there's some sort of RNG that the fans in the stadium pull out their phone and they vote on. Like, I think there's actually some cool things Mm. that from a user and viewer standpoint can be incorporated into mobile that can't be elsewhere. Um, We haven't seen that done in a major way, but that's another exciting piece from a viewer standpoint we could see happen in mobile. Okay. No, that is really interesting. I actually... Hadn't even thought of it in that point of way. Okay, so get the audience now engaged, like you're saying, if it's RNG or something like that, to where they feel a part of the the experience that the players are feeling. Yeah, I mean, if you could if you could have a developer that could work in, uh, truly work in, uh, you know, kind of engagement and meaningful engagement from an audience standpoint, that could take mobile esports to the next level. And the more I'm talking about this, I haven't thought about it that much myself, but it does make a lot of sense. <laughs> it does. Yeah. When you said it, I hadn't thought of that, but I'm like, wow, Will has a good point here. <laughs> it sounded like I had thought it through, but no, no, it does make sense. <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, well, well, that's great. And you know, I, I hadn't talked mobile gaming yet on the podcast and I, I know that you have a passion for it. So I, I definitely wanted to chat this with you and hopefully anyone that's listening, if, 
you had just a general grasp of mobile gaming. Now maybe you've learned a few things, um, but I think and, that was a great conversation. Go ahead. No, and my biggest thing, it's mobile gaming or just gaming in general, is don't don't have blinders on. Don't think that you know. Don't have uh, uh, just a, a, a small view of what the world of gaming is by looking at what's popular in your part of the world. Because even beyond gaming, you know, there's certain titles that are popular in, in other parts of the world, right? Fortnite's really popular in North America, but Counter Strike's dominated by a lot of you know EU viewership and. And, and, and certain titles are popular in different parts of the world, the same way we have in traditional sports, right? I couldn't tell you a thing about cricket. That's right. going to be the same as gaming gets more developed and esports get more developed. You know, uh, people who don't understand the industry think esports is like one game. Or I don't even know what they think, but they don't right. appreciate that there's different communities and different uh, environments being built around different games. A lot of that is geographic based. I think that's really important. That's my biggest takeaway from looking at mobile as an example, but it, it's beyond mobile. Definitely. I think we have to, like you're saying, I think we have to take a step back and realize that this is a global industry and different countries and, and different parts of the world are going to focus on on different esports. Um, and I mean, look at the Olympics. I think that's why so many people love watching the Olympics mm -hmm. is because if you live in the U.S., like you're saying, cricket might not be popular here, but maybe it is for another country or, you know, vice versa. Basketball is huge here. It might not be huge in another country. Um, and, you know, I think that's why people love the Olympics. So definitely something to keep in mind. Um, well, I think that wraps up the the points we really wanted to dive deep on. You know, again, to recap was the streaming wars, Fortnite, mobile gaming, some talk about Round Hill. Um, Will, before we move into the lightning round, I always usually take this moment to, to open the floor to my guests. So if there's anything that uh, we didn't cover or anything you wanted to re-highlight or do you think is a, a really important takeaway, I just want to give you the opportunity. No, I'm, I'm nervous and excited for the lightning round, but I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Well, this is called the Lodges Light 7. Um, like I had told you prior to getting on here, just seven easy and fun questions to wind down the episode. So the first question I have for you is what is your favorite place that you have traveled to? Oh, man, that's um, I've traveled a fair bit. I would say Morocco. OK, how come I'm, I'm, I'm going to dive deeper on this? One. I'm just interested. Yeah, no, Morocco was uh, it's a Muslim country. Um, uh -huh. It was really interesting to learn and appreciate that culture. They have amazing food. Uh, it was it was just I, I got to take a trip to the Sahara Desert where we we rode oh, wow. dromedaries in, into the sun. Like it, it was just like it felt like you were traveling back in time. But at the same time, I learned a ton. Really amazing. Interesting. Trip. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, second question. What was your favorite childhood TV show? Oh, uh, so you almost need to segment that into different age <laughs> ranges. But I, I, I bet if you ask my 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 parents they would say teenage mutant ninja turtles that was my favorite okay that's a good one um third question what profession other than your own would you like to try and for context we're going to say that you would be really good at it so if you were really good <laughs> at any profession what profession would you try really good at it oh man um if i was really good i don't you know i'd love to play in the nfl that'd be pretty cool Okay. Actually, well, that's not well, a good one with the no? CTE and stuff like that. Uh, no, I'm thinking like, <laughs> I don't know. Let's stick with that, even though it's not the best answer. Okay, no, no, no. That works. That works. Um, what is your favorite cereal? 
Oh, I don't eat cereal. That's easy. None. Oh, none. Okay, I'll take. Oh uh, no, I don't know. Like growing up, like uh, um, oh, what? I can't even remember. Lucky Charms, I guess. Okay, Lucky just Charms. Just because, just because it's pure crap. <laughs> it's usually the ones that are bad that are the best, but you know, whatever. <laughs> What's health, you know? Um, what would you say is your biggest pet peeve? Ooh, uh, biggest pet peeve. That is so hard. I think I'm pretty easygoing guy. I don't like. I don't get upset over the little stuff. Um, just not following through. People not okay. following through on stuff they say they're gonna follow through on. That's probably bigger than the pet peeve, but yeah. There no, you go. Okay. Um, here's here's the deep one of the set, so I'm sorry, but who would you say is the most influential person in your life? Uh, that would be my dad. Okay. That would definitely be my dad. Nice. And then lastly, a fun one is what would you say is your favorite video game of all time? Oh, man. All time. Uh, oh, that's so hard. I can give you like my favorite right now is Apex Legends, but that's definitely not my favorite of all time. Yeah, we've broken this up. So here's the second option is what's OK. So your favorite right now is Apex. Then what would you say, I guess, is was your favorite childhood game? I want to say this is not childhood, but my, my favorite maybe of all time is Call of Duty Black Ops 1. Um, okay. And then favorite childhood, uh, NBA Hangtime, which for those who don't know, it's like NBA Jam, but it came out a little bit later. Um, so it's basically like like an, like crazy animated two-on-two basketball with NBA players. NBA Jam was a lot of fun. That's, that's a good game. Um Awesome. Well, hey, you made it through. There's the Lodges Light 7. <laughs> um, so, Will, I just want to thank you one more time, you know, for, for coming on and talking about all these different subjects. I mean, really appreciate your expertise and your take on all of this. I, I had a fun time. I think we had a lot of great talking points. Um, where can anyone listening find you on social media? Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. Uh, find me on social, uh, obviously LinkedIn on my name, Twitter. Uh, I'm at maybe bullish, um, but more important than mine is uh, the com- our company Round Hill stuff. You can find at Round Hill on Twitter. We're also active on Instagram, on LinkedIn. We're starting to get YouTube going. So uh, probably the best resource, though, in general, roundhillinvestments.com. You'll find our blogs there. We also have a weekly newsletter that's all of this stuff's free if you want to keep up to date on esports and gaming. Yeah, absolutely. I, I highly vouch for anyone listening. If you even just want to get kept up with the industry, they have a lot of great stuff on there and, and on other socials. So, um, Will, thank you. This was fun. Um, you know, to everyone listening, the guest, if you are a new listener, I hope you guys really enjoyed this. If you are a past listener and you're just tuning in for, for your weekly pod, uh, again, appreciate you guys too tuning in, subscribing, rating, all that. Appreciate the support, and we will see you next week on another episode of The Lodges Podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this. You can find out more about Lodges by searching on Instagram at Lodges underscore financial, on Twitter at Lodges, on eFuse at Lodges, and on LinkedIn by searching for my name, Juan Rodriguez, J-U-A-N. Following on socials is the best way to be kept up to date with podcast updates and information. Thanks. And you were just listening to the Lodges podcast.